Back uh, at Christmas time last year, we gave my daughter uh, a little bit of a creative Christmas present. She has always wanted to go to a Broadway show, and so on New Year's Day, we gave her a Christmas present by flying to New York City. We saw the the show Wicked, and uh, we went to uh, Times Square, saw the Statue of Liberty, and then we flew back home. Well, we got to New York City on January 1st. Now, we didn't go December 31st for the million people in Times Square and all that kind of thing. First of all, hotel prices are about triple what they are normally. Didn't want to pay that, and it's just chaos. So we just went on New Year's Day. But when we got there, the the crystal ball that drops in Times Square was still lit up. It's up on top of the building. The big 2020 sign is up there, and I got Callie's picture kind of with that in the background. And man, everybody was excited about 2020. There was still a little of the confetti kind of blowing around. They clean up most of it, but some of it, every now and then you'd see a little piece of confetti blowing around. And everybody was excited that it was 2020. Brand new decade. Things are going to be great. You know, it's 20. We're all pumped up because it's 2020. Looking back, I wonder if we could have had a lens into the future, if we'd have been as excited about this year as we were on New Year's Eve. I kind of doubt it. I mean, COVID-19, social unrest in our communities, national, natural disasters like fires out in the West and hurricanes in the Gulf Coast, and just the whole political warfare. It's not just a campaign. It's like a political war that's going on in our country right now has left a lot of us just on edge. And we're fearful and uh, some of us are angry about things. And, and there's just a general sense in which we feel a bit out of control. So this morning, I want to take this passage of scripture and talk to you about how you live at a time when you feel like things are out of control. How do you survive a year like 2020 and beyond? How do you learn to thrive as a believer? How do you learn to thrive in your family? Uh, when all of, the, uh, all of our systems and all of our society just seems like it's on edge or it's falling apart in some places. And so how do we function as believers? Well, it might interest you that at the church at Colossae, there were some similar issues. Uh, in the ancient world, there were epidemics that swept through uh, their cities, and they had no concept of what a germ was, basic sanitation. And so many times, a lot of people died as a result of something that could be easily medically treated today. But there were epidemics back then. There was a political system that there was no campaign because the Roman emperor was the absolute ruler and what he said went. Christians were also beginning to be persecuted for their faith by the time the letter to the church at Colossae is written. You see, there was a a basic confession of the church. In Greek, it is Jesus Kurios, Jesus is Lord. But by this time, by the time the letter to the church at Colossae is written, emperor worship, the, imp, worshiping the emperor as, as divine had come into uh, vogue, that the emperors wanted to be worshiped. And so the, what you had to confess was, Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Well, Christians wouldn't do that because Jesus is Lord. And so they were beginning to be persecuted. And so how did they function? What were they to do? And the Apostle Paul gives the church at Colossae some instructions that are helpful for us in our time today. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on 
a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So let me offer you this morning the four pieces of advice that Paul gives these Colossian Christians that I believe are very relevant to us. How do you survive 2020 and beyond? Number one, learn to love people who are different from you. Learn to love people who are different from you. This ought to be a strong suit uh, among followers of Jesus. But if we are all honest, loving people who are different from us is a challenge. And all of us could grow a little bit in this area of our lives. I need to learn to love people who are different from me. There are some instructions here for attitudes I ought to have to do that. The first is, he says, I want you to put on a heart of compassion. The word compassion means to feel with another. Put another way, it's to see life through the lens of another person. I don't know what it's like to view life through the lens of a person of another race. I don't know what it's like to view life through the lens of a single mother. I don't know what it's like to view life through the lens of the spouse of a, of a police officer, a law enforcement officer whose spouse leaves every day, husband or wife leaves every day, and they have to be concerned about if they're going to come home or not. I don't know. I don't have to view life through that lens in my normal everyday life. I need to put on a heart of compassion and view life through the lens of other people. It grows compassion to me when I see things the way you see them. Now, I still might not agree with you, but I become compassionate towards you. Second, he says, not only compassion, but kindness. Just basic civility. We are losing that all around us. And if you ask me why, I'll give you my, my reason I think we are, is because of the anonymity that social media offers us. People would, will write things about another person that they would never say if they were face-to-face -face with them. And we're just losing basic kindness. Paul says, put on kindness, humility. You might be wrong. Be honest enough to admit that. I once thought I was wrong, but I was mistaken. Some of you get that later. Uh, thank you for those of you who did. Gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean weakness. The old word for gentleness is the word meekness. To be meek. And many people made that a synonym for that weakness. To be weak. It's not a synonym. The word picture of, of gentleness is strength under control. It's like a mighty stallion. A fiery, fast, strong stallion. Who is under the control of the rider with the, with the bit and the bridle. That stallion has lost none of his strength. But that strength is under control. And it can be channeled in a, in a constructive way. That's what gentleness is. He says, I also want you to be patient. 
Oh, to be patient. Most of us, let's just be honest, if we took a survey, about 100% of us go, I need to grow in patience. Nowhere do we show our impatience any more clearly than when we're driving. Right? I'm impatient when I drive, but I must be honest. I don't often tell stories on my wife. I'm smarter than that. But there is one that if she were here beside me, she would actually tell on herself. Okay? When we go on a long trip and I drive, I'll listen to the radio. She reads a book. Callie's watching a movie on a screen. And then I get tired and my wife drives and I open my magazine. And from the driver's seat, I get, and she knows it's true, a running commentary on every other driver on the road. If you pass her, you are a fool. Look at that fool. Where's he going so fast? He's about to run over me. If you're going slower than her, you're a jerk. That jerk's in my way. Get out of my way. Now, she would be honest and tell you that that is true of her. And we, we kind of wondered. I thought, like, why do you do that? And then I took a trip with her dad. It's inherited. It's genetic. But come on, we all need to be more patient. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint and bearing with one another, just as the Lord forgave you. But then he says this in verse 14. Beyond all these, above and beyond. Here's, here's what I want you to do. That's the most important thing. Put on love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the apostle Paul said, I can narrow down the virtues of the Christian life to three things, faith, hope, and love. It's like the argument about who's the greatest NFL player, who's the greatest quarterback, who's the greatest NBA player. You can usually come up with a short list, but then people start arguing about who's the best. Well, Paul says, I can, I can give you the short list of the greatest virtues, faith, hope, and love. But even among these, one stands out. The greatest of these is love. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. We need to learn to love one another and to lo learn to love people who are different from us. There's been a lot in the news this week about the United States Supreme Court. But one of the strangest or maybe most unique stories that maybe you have or haven't read is the story of a unique friendship. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and created the most recent vacancy on the Supreme Court. And she was arguably the most liberal. And if we use the left-right spectrum, she was the farthest to the left on the Supreme Court for many years. Antonin Scalia, who died in 2016, was arguably the farthest to the right, the most conservative justice on the Supreme Court. What many people did not know and has been widely reported in recent weeks is that they had a fast friendship. They shared a love of opera. And so they would go to the opera together, their, their spouses, and then would go to the opera together. They learned to enjoy traveling together. There's a humorous photograph of them, of Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg on back of a camel on a trip to India that's gotten a lot of play in recent weeks. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty, died... When anything like that happens, the full court assembles, and before the session, the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, announced that Marty, her husband, had died. Sitting next to him was Antonin Scalia, and he wept openly at the death of his friend's 
husband. In 2016, when Justice Scalia died, Chief Justice Roberts announced the same thing, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg cried as she lost at the loss of her friend. These are people who were very different. They held very different views. But they learned to love one another as friends. As those of us who are followers of Jesus and have within us Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Spirit of God himself, surely we can learn to love people who are different from us. Let me tell you why it's so important. Paul tells us in this passage. He says that love is the perfect bond of unity. It's what holds us together. That word in the language of the New Testament is, is a word that would be used for an adhesive, something like superglue in our modern vernacular that, that bonds something together inseparably. And Paul is saying that our love for one another is what is the bond that holds the church together. Now, I believe doctrine is important, but doctrine is not the bond. I, you hear biblical doctrine from this pulpit when I preach. But doctrine's not the bond. Style is not the bond. We have two totally different styles of worship in our church. It's not the bond. The bond is not politics. Oh, heaven help us. Every now and then I get a question that I probably ought to answer. Why don't you take a stand? I mean, you've got, you've got a big voice, a big church, a television ministry. Why don't you take a stand on political issues? Why don't you endorse a political candidate. I'm going to, I want to give you why I don't do that, just to answer the question for you. First of all, I have more important things to do. Now, that sounds like a smart aleck answer. I believe politics are important, but I believe the gospel's more important. The gospel is the supreme message, and I don't want to weaken the supreme message with a weaker message. The second thing I'd say to you is I don't want to mislead you. I do not want to mislead you into thinking that if we just get the right people elected, we just get the right party in power, we just get the right laws passed, and we just get the right justice, uh, judges in the courts to enforce those laws, then everything will be fine. It won't be. Let me tell you why. The problem in our world is a sin problem. And a sin problem doesn't have a, spirit, uh, doesn't have a political solution. It has a spiritual solution. That's the problem in our world. It's a problem of the human heart. We believe that the way our world is changed, the way our country will be changed, is when hearts are changed. That's what's significant and important in our church. I'm going to give you a third reason that I don't. Some of you, I hope all of you, but I, I know some of you do. You have friends, you have neighbors, you have coworkers. And they are way different from you politically. Okay? Thanksgiving's always interesting after a presidential election, right? But you know this. They are also way different from you spiritually. And you want them to come to know Jesus. You want them to go to heaven with you when they die. You, you want them to receive the forgiveness of sin and, and the free gift of eternal life. 
You want that to happen, and you pray for them, and you invite them, and they look at you, and they trust you, and they see that God really has done some things in your life. And so somewhere down the line, they say, yeah, I'll go with you to church, and they come to this place. And if what they hear from me is partisan politics and endorsing a political candidate, they will never hear about our Jesus. Do I want them to change the way they vote? I probably do, personally. Do I want you to vote? Yes, I do. But if we change people's hearts, somewhere down the road, the Holy Spirit will work on them, and they'll change the way they vote. That's not my job. My job is to preach the gospel and to try to get as many people's hearts changed as possible. Now, do I care about politics? Yes, I do. I care about life. I care about biblical sexuality. I care about justice. I care about the way we treat the poor. All four of those things are talked about in the Bible. And all four of them are present in our political debate. Do I want you to vote? Yes, I do. Here's what you need to do. You need to read the party platforms if you're confused about who to vote for. It'll probably iron it out for you. Read the party platforms. What you ought to do is pray and seek the Holy Spirit, whom you have as much as I do, and vote your convictions. That's what I want you to do. But what we're not going to do is come to this place and speak a lesser message when we have a greater message. So we need to learn to love people who are different from us. Number two, allow the peace of Jesus to guard your heart. We look around us and we're going, man, our world is in need of peace. We're in need of peace. I mean, we saw it it in Minneapolis. We saw it in Portland. We saw it in Louisville, Kentucky. We saw saw rioting and looting and we saw lawlessness. And and that was the image that we saw. And how, how we responded to that, by the way, as a culture is really interesting. The sale of firearms skyrocketed. Now, I'm a gun owner. I I own a firearm, too. And I know this. The price of ammunition more than quadrupled from where it was in 2019. There is a sense in which we do not have peace in our country, and so we revert to wanting to self-protect. And like I said, I'm I'm all about protection, self-defense. It's a good thing. But that doesn't settle my heart. And here's what Paul writes. Let the peace of God, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, which were, you were called into one body. Peace means a sense of wholeness. It means to be settled. It means tranquility. Peace in your heart doesn't mean there's not going to be chaos and conflict and confusion externally. That's going to happen. The world is fallen in sin. Yes, there's going to be conflict and chaos, confusion. It's always going to be there. But you can be still and calm in the middle of the storms that are surrounding you. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. I give you my peace. Jesus promises us that he offers us his peace. Now, there are two keys to having the peace of God. How do you have the peace of Christ? There are two things that you must rest in to have the peace of Christ. The first is this. God 
is in control. He is. God is in control. He is in control of history. He is in control of our world. I know it looks like it's out of control, but God is ultimately in control. Now, that is a comforting thought to a certain degree. But there is a second thought you need to to marry with that in order to find peace. Here's the formula for peace. I know that God is in control. And second, he loves me. He loves me. Sometimes what I need to revert to is the single simplest truth that I've ever learned. And I learned it in the first song I ever learned. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's not just a children's song. It may be the deepest spiritual truth we ever learn. That we are deeply loved by God. He is in control and we are held by him. If I'm going to survive in a world that looks like it's spinning out of control, in a society that looks like it's gone off the rails, I need to allow the peace of Christ to guard my heart. Number three, seek wisdom from worship and the word. Look down at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, yes, that's listening to sermons. It's a good thing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching today. You're doing a good job with that. But if you look at that verse, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you has a bit more meaning than sitting through a 30-minute sermon. There's something more to letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And that is that you need a daily time when you read God's word. You need a reading plan. You need a you need a devotional plan. Uh, so for some people, that's more scripture. For some people, it's less. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to be legalistic in that regard. But you do need to really absorb the wisdom of God's word as you try to make decisions in this world. But you also need to worship. Worship refreshes the soul. Worship is what empowers us and gives us uh, the, the power to move forward. And he says, I want you to worship. And he gives us a threefold formula with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You didn't know it, but this morning you worshiped with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This morning we sang a psalm. A psalm is a song that is taken straight out of scripture. And we sang Psalm 23. We sang that psalm this morning as Randy led us. We sang a hymn this morning. A hymn is a song composed by a human author. It speaks directly of the greatness of God or it speaks of of what God has done in our lives. It is a humanly composed song that has staying power. And we sang an old hymn, How Great Thou Art, this morning. How Great Thou Art has been around a long time. It's probably going to be around a long time after I'm gone if Jesus doesn't come back. And so we sing hymns. A spiritual song is a little bit different. Literally, it means songs of the Spirit. 
what Paul is speaking of is songs that the Holy Spirit is using right now. Sometimes there are songs that in a moment, in a season of time, they are just so powerful and they speak to the need and to the heart of a generation. We sang one of those this morning. The Lauren Daigle song that Jenny led us in to begin our our musical set this morning, You Say, is a song that I have watched and I have listened to and I, I watch people's reaction to that song and it does something in this generation. Now, will it be around as how, how long as How Great Thou Art? I don't know and it doesn't matter. But God's using it right now. Maybe in some of your generations it was a song from 20 or 30 years ago if you're a little bit older and it was something that, that deeply moved you. Here's what you need to remember. For those of you who are a little bit younger, hymns are not antiques. They are anchors. They anchor our faith. For those of you who are a little bit older and you say, well, I really like the hymns, contemporary worship songs are not kiddie camp songs. They are deeply held expressions of what God is doing in a generation right now. And they are, they are all beautiful expressions of worship. Now, what Paul is saying is, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Worship. So when you're in a time of chaos and confusion and misunderstanding and, and fear, what do you do? You need to turn to the word and worship. And most of the time in Christian history, that's been the case. I remember the Sunday after September 11th, 2001. The church that I served had two worship services and we were packed, standing room only, people standing around the walls. That hasn't really happened with the COVID-19 and with all the things happening in 2020. It really hasn't. Now, I realize some of that was because, well, they told us not to come to church, right? But even in our lockdown, there's been some research. And some of the numbers are a little bit discouraging for me as a pastor. According to researchers, they've asked a number of people who self-identified as Christians. And one of the things they asked them was, during the lockdown period, during this, the COVID-19, the first three months of it, how much did you read your Bible? 29% of them said that they read their Bible more than once a week. 71% of them said that on Sundays they read their Bibles or participated in a worship service where the Bible was read, but they did not open their Bible from Monday to Saturday, 29%. At the same time, those same people, self-professing Christians, 89% of them said they watched more television shows, they watched more movies. So rather than turning to Scripture, what we turned to was... We binged on Netflix to try to entertain ourselves and to give ourselves a placebo. And that's a little discouraging for me as a pastor, just to be honest with you. Now, there's nothing wrong with being entertained. My family and I watched the movies too. It's, I mean, it, we were bored, right? But don't drop your guard and don't drop your discipline when it comes to reading the Word. You need the wisdom that comes from the Word and the encouragement that comes from worship. One final thought that Paul gives us. And it's a big one, actually. Filter my words and actions through the honor principle. Through the honor principle. Here's what he says. Whatever. Now, let's stop right there. That's a pretty big word. 
I don't mean just that it has eight letters. I mean, it's a big word. Whatever. That's a big circle. Whatever you do. That encompasses your family life, your church life, your work life, your social life, whatever you do. And then Paul goes a step farther. He says, let me make it clear to you. Whatever you do, by whatever you say in word and by whatever you do, your actions in deed, whatever you do, your whole life, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That simply means this, that we are to live our lives, we are to speak words, we are to conduct our relationships in ways that when people look at us, they see in our lives honor for Jesus Christ. I'm asked questions frequently as a pastor. They're good questions. If you've got a question, I'll try to answer it for you. It's not a problem. But sometimes I'm asked this question. Pastor, I'm, I, there's an activity, I think it's a little questionable, so I want to ask you, is it a sin to fill in the blank? Is it a sin to drink alcohol? Is it a sin to use CBD products? Got that one this week. Is it a sin to go to a casino? Uh, let me help you with, with something. That's not a bad question. It's not a wrong question. I think you ought to know where the boundaries are. It's It's good. But is it a sin is the lowest threshold of the Christian life. I mean, that, that's like the bare minimum requirement is, is it a sin? There's a second question that's actually a little better. And I believe it's the decision-making template of the New Testament is, is it wise? If you're like, you've got something that's questionable, the next level up from is it a sin is, is it wise? Okay, the Bible says maybe I could do this. All things are permissible for me, but not all things are profitable for me. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. So is it wise? By wisdom, just a simple, is it helpful to me? Is it helpful to you? But I believe there is a third question that we should ask, and it is a driving motivator for those who seriously want to follow Christ. Not just is it a sin, fill in the blank. Not just is it wise, but does it honor the name of Jesus? When I speak the way I speak, does it honor Jesus? When I act in the way I act, does it honor Jesus? When I go to lunch today and the waiter or waitress gets distracted and they don't refill my glass and I'm about to choke on my food and I'm angry at them because they didn't come fill my glass, does my response to them honor Jesus? Just an example. Does the way I treat my spouse honor Jesus? Does the way I speak to my children honor Jesus? Does the way I interact with my coworkers bring honor to Jesus? And by honor, I would define it as this. Do my actions make people look at me and say, he's a Christian. I'm attracted to the kind of Jesus he portrays. Or do my actions make them say this? If that's what a Christian's like, 
I don't want to be one. The honor principle. Does my life, do my words, and do my actions honor Jesus? I honestly believe if more of us would live our lives and have that question sort of as a template for us to walk through, I really believe it it would be revolutionary. I really do. That if whatever we did, the way we speak, the way we interact with people, the way we do our work, our integrity and honesty in business dealings, if we did it all and said, is my response the most honoring thing to Jesus? It'd make a difference in our world. Because people would look at us and say, whatever it is you've got, I need. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we live in chaotic times. We live in confusing times, in times of conflict. And as Christians, we want to shine a light into our world. Father, our, our country needs you. There are people around us who need you. And so, Lord, equip us and empower us to be lights in this darkness. To let them see the glory of your gospel and the truth of your word through the lives that we live and the words that we say. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted Jesus that today would be their day. That the gospel, that they would see it as the answer. The answer for their sin problem. And I pray that they would cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. But I believe that you died on that cross in my place to pay my price. And I believe that you were literally, physically raised from the dead and you're alive right now so that you who conquered death can give me life. I ask you to come into my life, forgive me, save me, give me the gift of eternal life today. And I will follow you as Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.